0: And for the rest of us, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 20. We're living in a world where singles in Manhattan, for example, who they swiped right yesterday afternoon determined who they woke up in bed with this morning. When I was growing up, the prevailing wisdom in the world was that if you really loved someone, it was okay to go all the way with them, whether you were married or not. But today, there's Tinder, there's friends with benefits, there's porn available on every computer and every phone. The world has changed. And we live in that world, right? And so do our children and our grandchildren. And so as we come to a passage like today's passage, the question is, what does God have to say about all of this? And the answer is that God's not shy to talk about a topic like sex. And today's passage has a lot to say about it. Well, as always, when we're reading Paul's letters, a letter like 1 Corinthians, we need to realize that when Paul originally dictated them, and I would love, um, Doug, if you're listening, if you could turn on the stage lights. Delt my glasses. It makes me a little makes it a little easier for me to see my notes with more light up here. Even though it's hot, they're on the right hand wall, <laughs> or maybe they're all blown out. Who knows? Anyway, um, so when Paul originally dictated his letters, he was addressing specific places, specific people uh, living there who are facing specific circumstances. And before we can understand what God has to say to us through someone like Paul, we have to understand what he was saying in this case um, to the followers of Jesus living in a Greek city called (laughs) Corinth about 2,000 years ago. Now, one of the the biggest and most important, or sorry, uh, the biggest and most ignorant criticisms of the Bible is that it's old-fashioned. And that it was addressing a different age when moral standards were just different than they are now. And so it doesn't get us. Well, people who say this actually say it out of complete ignorance. And they know nothing of the Roman Empire in the first century that Paul is addressing. (laughs) They're probably confusing it with Victorian England or maybe Indiana in the 1950s or something. But to give you an idea of what the world was actually like... In New Testament times and how decadent it was, listen to what Demosthenes, the Greek statesman, had to say on behalf of his fellow Greek men. We have courtesans for pleasure, slave women for our body's daily needs, and wives to bear legitimate children and to faithfully guard our households. Now just picture this with me. In a city like Corinth, one of the ways that you socialized was you went to dinner parties, at least if you were upper class, and these parties would be hosted by another man in your social circle. Only men were allowed at these parties, not their wives. That's not their wives you see there in that picture, and how good of a party the host threw was part of what maintained his status and his honor in his community. The host was expected to wine and dine you, and then to provide after-dinner entertainment that he paid for which was a lady for each guest. Or if you preferred a teen boy, those were sometimes available as well. You could have that. And this courtesan was your companion for the meal and then for the evening. And these may well be the prostitutes Paul's talking about in our passage today. Of course, there were regular prostitutes too. So this was available to you as a Greek man and even as a teenage boy once you reached the age of 15 in that culture. And wives had to put up with it. What choice did they have? It was a man's world. Then as Demosthenes mentions, the rest of the week, wealthy Greek men had their female slaves, boy slaves too, available to them. And get this, in that culture, if you were a married man, None of this was considered adultery, as long as it didn't involve another married woman of high class. And so this is the kind of world that the Corinthians are living in and that Paul is addressing. This is the kind of background that the Corinthian believers are coming out of as they decide to follow Jesus. And Paul describes this right in in verse 9. He mentions the sexually immoral idolaters, Those who, from his perspective, are adulterers. And then, depending on your translation, men who have sex with men or men who practice homosexuality or effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind, if you have the old King James. And what all these different translators are trying to translate here are two Greek words. And, of course, in recent decades, there's been a lot of interest in how to translate these words. Whole chapters in books have been written about it and battles have been fought. One of the words refers or seems to refer to the active partner in a male same-sex encounter, and the other seems to refer to the passive partner, perhaps someone who's a teenager, perhaps someone who sells themselves, though not necessarily. And we can't go into all the details of the arguments now, but one thing is clear in this particular verse, Paul's not talking about orientation, or desire, or identity, he's talking specifically about behaviors, people who habitually engage in these behaviors. And of course, he goes on to list those who engage in other behaviors, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers. And we talked about these a bit last Sunday. But then in verse 13, Paul goes on to specifically address in more detail, sexual immorality. This was a big deal for Paul because it was a big deal in Corinth. For Jews like Paul, who were raised on the Old Testament and discipled in the teachings of Jesus, they looked at the Gentile pagan world, and one of the big things that they saw that didn't match their morals was all the sexual immorality around them. And so their sexual ethics was as much a thing that separated them as Jews from the pagans around them as not eating pork, or not working on the Sabbath, or not worshiping idols. So what is sexual immorality? Well, for Jews who took the Old Testament seriously, and for followers of Jesus, it has always meant sexual intimacy with anyone to whom you are not married in a heterosexual marriage. Now, here's Paul's concern. Sexual immorality of many kinds was going on in Corinth among the followers of Jesus. And Paul had written to them already previously. We've seen this. It's mentioned in chapter 5, verse 9. Paul had written to them and told them to stop it. But evidently, they wrote back to Paul, and they pushed back on him, and they defended why they didn't need to stop it. And that's what Paul seems to be responding to in today's passage. And one of the difficulties in reading 1 Corinthians is that sometimes Paul is quoting what the Corinthians said in their letter to him, and other times he's replying with his own perspective. But there's no quotation marks in the original Greek, so sometimes it's hard to know when Paul is quoting them and when Paul is saying what he thinks. Well, it seems likely that this is what the Corinthians are arguing. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything. I can do whatever I want, Paul. Don't tell me what to do. To which Paul replies, but not everything is beneficial. And I will not be mastered by anything. Then in verse 13, the Corinthians also seem to be arguing that food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And this was likely a proverb. And like a lot of proverbs, it wasn't just about food. Any more than a stitch in time saves nine is just about sewing, or one bad apple spoils the whole bunch is just about apples. Rather, this proverb about the food and the stomach is likely about all the things we crave, the things we're hungry for, that we desire, all of our bodily desires and the things that can satisfy them. In other words, if I have a stomach, it must be that food belongs in it. If I have a libido, it must be that I should satisfy it. That's the idea of the proverb. In other words, sex is for the body and the body is for sex. But there's more, verse 13, right? God will destroy them both. And here we're not totally sure if this is also part of what the Corinthians think, or if it's how Paul responds, I think it's probably still part of what the Corinthians are saying to Paul. God will destroy them both. In other words, our bodies and our bodily desires and the ways we satisfy them, they're all going to perish and go away anyway. So it doesn't matter what we do or don't do with our bodies. So here's how I'd summarize the Corinthians perspective. This is why they think sexual immorality is okay. First, my body doesn't matter. Once I die, it's going to be left behind anyway. It's going to be destroyed. So how I use it now doesn't matter. I can do what I want with it. I can satisfy whatever desires I have. And this was a very Greek platonic perspective. For Plato, what really matters is the spirit, the heavenly The fleshly is corrupted. It's passing away. And our goal is to escape it and go to the spiritual world. Well, then, second, the Corinthians seem to be arguing, and this is related to the first what I do with my body doesn't affect me spiritually. I can have a wonderful meal and then I can spend the evening with a prostitute and it's just my body. It doesn't matter. It's not affecting my spirit. In my spirit, I'm spiritual. I love Jesus. I'm good, Paul. So question, have you ever tried to live that way? I I have. I've tried. Uh, For one example, at one point, I had a girlfriend. We never slept together, but sometimes we were physical in ways that I had told myself I didn't feel comfortable with and we wouldn't do. But I wasn't committed enough to those boundaries to make sure we didn't get in situations where we were tempted to break them. And when we did cross those boundaries, after that, I'd try to reconnect with God. And I began to realize it wasn't so easy. Not because God didn't love me, but because I was feeling guilty, I was feeling regret, I was feeling defeated. I couldn't just act one way with my body and then think it wasn't going to affect my spirit. I've had other friends who in seasons of their life, they said, you know, I know what God thinks about my girlfriend or my boyfriend, that they're not good for me, that they're not a good influence on me, or or that what I'm doing with them is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway for now. I'm just going to tune God out of that area of my life. And guess what? Over time, this affected their whole life. It affected their relationship with God. It affected their spirit. Well, this idea that the Corinthians have, that that my body doesn't matter and how I use it doesn't matter, and that what I do with it doesn't affect my spirit, Paul strongly disagrees. And he tears the Corinthians' argument apart with his arguments. And the key point of his argument is that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 14: by, by this His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also." Now what does resurrection have to do with anything? I thought we were talking about sex here, Paul. What does Easter, Christ's resurrection, have to do with what I do with my body? Well, for Paul everything because think about what resurrection is think about what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead Jesus's spirit didn't leave his body behind and fly away to be free no God raised Jesus body from the grave Jesus came back to life in his body in other words bodies must be pretty important to God Bodies must be worth holding on to. So much so that God raised Jesus' body again. And he will raise ours also. Look at your body. Maybe your hand. Maybe your leg. Take care of it. Because you are going to have it forever. Now sure, if you're a follower of Jesus, it will be transformed one day. It will be upgraded, glorified renewed. Some of us are really grateful for that. (laughs) That will happen in some mysteriously glorious way. But you are not losing your body, ever. Your body is part of you. It's how God made you. And so Paul, back in verse 13 now, says, and here Paul picks up on the Corinthians proverb that they quote, and he transforms it. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food? No, better The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Even Jesus, the Lord, kept his body when he was raised again. And Jesus has it now. Do you realize that? As Jesus sits exalted at God's right hand, Jesus has his human body. Transformed, yes, glorified, but Jesus is not an embodied spirit. And we won't be either. And so our bodies are so important to God, after all, God created them. And Paul adds next, our bodies belong to the Lord. Verse 15, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Don't you know, in other words, that your bodies are the hands and the feet and the limbs and the organs of Christ? Right? We're the body of Christ. We just talked about that. One of us is the hand, another maybe a tongue. Our bodies and we in them are the parts of Christ's body. Whoa, it just blows my mind to, to try to get my mind around this. Somehow my body is a limb or an organ, a part, a member of Christ. Then Paul switches to another metaphor, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? My body is like a temple and God's own spirit, God's own presence, God's own self dwells in me. I'm a palace. I'm a home for God. So I'm holy. Go back and read chapter 3 again. We looked at it. We belong to God. God has set his name on us, put his presence in us. We are his temple if we're a follower of Jesus. And if anyone destroys God's temple, Paul had said back in chapter 3, God will destroy that person. Wow. And so Paul concludes, don't say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. No, your bodies matter. They are Christ's limbs, organs. They are the temples of God. They will be raised from the dead one day. You will have them forever. And verses 19 and 20 also, our bodies were purchased, were bought by Christ's death on the cross. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Just like a rich Greek man could go down to the market in that day and buy a slave, and pay money, and bring that person home, and then do with that person whatever he wanted. So God purchased us. We belong to him now. We are not our own. And the good news is God is not abusive. God is not domineering. He purchased us, not to enslave us, but surprise, to lavish love on us, and to make us a part of his family as a child. God purchased us for our good, to help us, to bless us, to honor us, to lift us up, to save us. But we do belong to him and not to ourselves. Don't you miss Liz Caniglio? She used to supply the amens. Now, now, now maybe Ron will pick that up. <laughs> and so Paul concludes, honor God with your body. So, what Paul's argument in contradiction to the way of the Corinthians, the way that they're thinking about sexual immorality, what, what, what is Paul's argument? Well, let me quickly just summarize what we've seen. First of all, Paul says, not everything you do is beneficial, not everything is good for you. Second, some things will enslave you. Think addiction, think desires that you can't control. Third, God purchased your body by the blood of Christ. It belongs to Jesus. Fourth, it is God's temple. Your body is God's temple. God dwells in you. You are special. You are set apart. You are holy. And then fifth, and the others you can join Ron too. Don't You, know, you don't have to leave him hanging there. Fifth, your body is, is a limb or an organ of Christ. You're part of Christ. And, and so Paul says, don't take your body, God's temple, God's hand or foot or ear, and unite it with a prostitute or a courtesan. That would be so wrong. Don't you realize, Paul says, when two people unite in that way, they become one flesh, verse 16. And, and then here in verses 15 to 17, Paul delves into what it means and how profound it is that on the one hand, if We have put our faith in Christ. If we're living in his salvation, we're united with Christ. We're joined to Christ. We're connected to Christ. And then on the other hand, when you sleep with someone, you become one flesh with them. You're united, joined, and connected to them. Human souls are soft and porous. We're we're meant to unite. We're meant to connect. We're meant to mingle with other persons, human and divine. That's part of what it means to love and to be loved. When Ann and I have taught our kids about the birds and the bees and talked to them about dating and sex, we've used this illustration. Um, We've taken two pieces of construction paper and we've glued them together. Helps to have new new glue. There we go. Put a nice heart on there. So, so we've glued them together. We're, we're making the two one. We are uniting the two together. And, and we explain to our kids, this is what happens when two people are intimate. When When... Two people become one with each other. To to quote a U2 song, when they're united with God's glue. And then we take this construction paper and and we set it aside. And then later we we take it again for the sake of time. Here's one I did ahead of time. And, And then we tear it apart to show what happens when we unite ourselves, when we unite our bodies with another person who isn't our forever person. A person who we're not married to, that that we haven't made a lifelong commitment to, and so chances are, eventually, we're going to be torn apart. I put too much glue on this, maybe, but you get the idea. And what happens is that a part of us tears, is, is torn apart when this happens. A part of us is lost, and we hurt, and our hearts break, unless we harden ourselves to it, which is what so many people have to do to cope. And this isn't what God wants for us. There's enough heart, uh, hurt in the world already without this. And getting back to Paul, what, what he's saying about this unifying and this joining and this connecting is that the only one we're supposed to be glued together with like this, apart from a spouse if we have one, is Christ. Verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so how can you go, Paul asks, and unite your body, Christ's own limbs and organs, with a prostitute also? Now, Christianity has sometimes been accused of being against sex and being repressed. And unfortunately, that's too often been true. But it's not true of the Bible, and it's not true of God's Word. I mean, have you read the Song of Solomon? (laughs) If you have not, wait until you're, I don't know, 18, 16, and then read it. (laughs) And Paul, though he's single himself, he's not at all against the two becoming one flesh. He's all for it if you're married. Wait till we get to chapter 7. Paul there tells married couples, he tells them, don't deprive one another. You have a responsibility to be available to each other. Now you have to negotiate together how often and when you need to submit your desire to your partner's need for space and vice versa. Yes, negotiate this. Be considerate with one another, but don't just carte blanche, deny each other. Because each of you needs to be able to enjoy the good gift that God has given you. What, what Paul is against isn't sex, it's sexual immorality. It's taking the good gift that God has given and tweaking it and grasping it on your own terms. And what did God means physical intimacy to be? A celebration. A celebration of the unity a man and a woman share as the two become one flesh, as they covenant together to be faithful to each other, to stick with each other through thick and thin, to to work through their problems for better, for worse, to guard their love, to protect their love, to nurture and cultivate it, and to rekindle it together when it goes out. And so the two becoming one flesh is about them celebrating that and finding pleasure in that. In other words, God isn't anti-sex, God is pro-commitment. But of course, we're tempted to bypass commitment and to find temporary pleasure for ourselves. To use another person, to find a moment of pleasure for ourselves or a season of pleasure, and, and maybe to give them pleasure in return, but without any promises and without any commitments. Only for as long as the pleasure continues to be pleasurable. And God says, that's not love. And it's not what I want for you. It's not good for you or for them in the end. It's going to tear you apart. Don't use another person that way and then kick them to the curb when things don't work out. Or put yourself in a position where they can kick you to the curb. No, love is not only about pleasure and intimacy for as long as it lasts, love is also about commitment and fidelity. It's not only for better, but also for worse. Not only for richer, but also for poorer. Not only in sickness, or sorry, it's in sickness as well as in health. We live in a disposable world today. Disposable diapers, disposable plates and cups and cutlery. But disposable lovers? No, God says, love is not disposable. Don't make it that. Lovers are not disposable. Don't use your body in that way. Use your body for love, for committed love, for faithful love, for married love, if you're so blessed to have that. But even if you have, or, and also if you don't, Even more so for all of us, use your body to serve and honor Christ, Paul says. And to go outside of that and unite your body with someone else is like taking Christ and uniting him with a prostitute. That's not what your body is for. Your body belongs to Christ. He purchased it. Use it to serve him. Use it to honor him. Our bodies belong to Jesus now and forever. Okay, well, as we end, here's an important question whenever we talk about this topic. What if I've already messed up, right? What if I didn't know any better? Or what if I gave in to temptation? Or what if I knew it was wrong, but I chose to do it anyway? Or what if someone else forced on me what I didn't want? Or what if I'm stuck now, I'm struggling with addiction, And as a result, I feel shame, I feel guilt, I feel unclean, I feel unworthy, I feel helpless and powerless. Well, Paul addresses that in verse 11. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, of course, Paul's referring to our conversion here when we first chose to put our faith in Jesus and he made us clean and he cleansed us from our sins and he made us his own. But that doesn't stop being true when we mess up, right? We all mess up in one way or another. In fact, scripture says in 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful news? Do you believe it? Will you let it sink in? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so once again, being cleansed, we can live in the reality Paul says is true of us that we are washed clean, we are sanctified, we are justified. We can begin anew, made pure by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Well, what is it that, or what if, you're struggling with with a habit or a temptation now? And you're discouraged. Maybe you're ashamed. Maybe you can't seem to overcome it. Well, get help. Find someone you you trust to confide in, and with their support and encouragement, get some help. Sometimes we can't win these battles on our own. We need resources. We need the gifts and experiences and encouragement of others. There are a lot of resources out there that have helped a lot of people by Christ's liberating power get free. And by the way, I can help you find resources, or you can come to me for your friend and, you know, keep them anonymous if you want, and and we'll help find resources from them. Resources are available. So how do we, how do you want to respond to God's word this morning? Will you present your body to Christ? Uh, You can stand if you want to do this next part, or stay seated if you're more comfortable. Will you say, though, I I want to recognize and confess what's already true. God, my body is your temple. My body is your hand or foot or tongue. I have been bought with a price. I have been washed clean. Maybe I need to be washed clean again, but I belong to you. I want to use my body for your kingdom, for your purposes. Jesus, I realize my body belongs to you now and forever. So question, what does it look like for you practically to present your body as belonging to Jesus? Is it to start doing something? Is it to stop doing something? Is it to get help? From time to time, we leave the church with good intentions, right? But sometimes we we need someone to talk with to encourage us to follow through on those intentions. So as we sing the last couple songs, I encourage you to think who you trust, who could encourage you to follow through on whatever your intention is right now. And there are some index cards, some sheets of paper in the seat backs in front of you. I want to encourage you write down the name of that person and plan to talk to them this week if you need help following through on your intentions. Let's continue to worship.